As we were saying, the accounts of Acts chapter 4 are the continuing story of this lame beggar who was healed in Acts chapter 3. And as we looked at the story of this lame man in Acts chapter 3, we saw that it isn't just the healing of this man that is remarkable. It isn't just that someone is going from being broken to made whole, but it's the declaration about what that act means. It means that Jesus is Lord. It means that his death and resurrection has brought new life and brings new creation, and that in this uh, simple act of healing, it is a declaration of Christ's lordship over all. Now, the disciples understood this. And the multitudes, they they didn't quite get this. In in chapter 3, we see as Peter and John and this lame man make their way into uh, the gates of the temple and they come into this area called Solomon's portico they see the multitudes they see this lame man this guy who was there that they who they have known for over 40 years to be this uh, man who was broken they see him walking about jumping they see him leaping they see him praising the Lord and they can't help but wonder what has happened and so Peter comes together with the people and he speaks he proclaims Uh, Christ as the risen Lord, as the Messiah, as God, through the lens of the healing of this man. And many in the multitude believe. Many come to faith as a result. But on the flip side, we find that the religious leaders of the day, they don't like what is happening. They aren't enjoying this portion of their ministry. We find that in chapter 4, verse 2, the religious leaders come out and they arrest uh, the apostles. And it says there that they do this because they were greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The problem that the religious leaders had was that One, they're teaching it all. They're kind of usurping power. They're filling the role that would have belonged to these religious leaders. But also, they don't like what is being taught. They don't like the content, the proclamation. And so they seek to do something about it. They put uh, Peter and John in prison overnight. They come the next day and they put them on trial in the same place, in the same location, with the same group of people who were likely there at Jesus's uh, trial, at his interrogation, just a few weeks earlier. And here we have uh, Jesus being put on trial again through the apostles, through his uh, disciples who he told would be witnesses of his resurrection. And here they are testifying again to the resurrected Christ. And so these men are faithful to do just that. Peter comes and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He proclaims the gospel. And he just lays it all out there. He ends his message to them in verse 12 this way. He says, To the religious leaders, 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He lays it all out for them. And now they have to make a choice. He puts this out there for them and kind of just it, it hangs in the air there for a minute. We don't get a response yet. And it's, if, it's as if Luke, the author, is intending for you and I, the readers, to come to that and say, well, what are you going to do about that question? What are you going to do about that statement? We don't have this direct response or we, we don't have an, an outburst and they're like, oh, no, we don't believe that. We, none of that is there. There's just this, this statement about who Jesus is and how he brings salvation that hangs in the air to bring that level of interaction with the reader and the text so that we might come and say, what do we believe about that statement? For you and for I, do we confess that there is salvation in no one else? Do we make that declaration do we make that declaration that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved? Now, I think a lot of us would say, yes, we affirm that. We say that that is the case. That is the truth. But the struggle of the Christian life is one of sanctification. When you make that confession in your mouth, now it's the process of yielding yourself to Christ as Lord. If this is true, if Jesus is Lord, that means now we must live in accordance with his commands. We must live in accordance with his character to know him, to want to be like him. And this means that our lives must begin to line up with how Christ has designed life to look how he has uh, orchestrated the life of a Christian. And so we make often that statement with our mouths, but a lot of times our lives look a little bit different. Now, sometimes that's because we're in rebellion, we're in sin to a certain extent, where we're like, I'm just going to do what I want. And we're not really living with Christ as the Lord of our life, making our decisions with his rule and reign over our lives in mind. But then there are times where we're just, we are doing well and we're trying to do our best. We're just blowing it, you know, just everyday average stuff. And that's just the process of sanctification. That is the Holy Spirit working in you to pull out the nature that you have and replacing it with the holiness of Christ and making your decisions, your choices, the things that you do and say align more closely with Christ. When you look at the life of Christ, do you ever notice that when he walks around throughout the Gospels, no, the people who, who seem to interrupt him never really interrupt him. The, the things that he seems to do and take part in, he spends time with a lot of people who seem to be wasting their time, but yet somehow he's making something of that. And I think as we go through our lives, we have to have these spiritual eyes to live in a way like Jesus when we are walking around understanding that and every interaction that we have is perhaps one that Jesus might take. One that he might reach out to somebody. 
and engage them, to help them understand his love for them and to bring them into his kingdom. As we come through the text, this is precisely what the disciples are seeking to make the point in with the religious leaders. We come in, they make this statement, and now we find kind of these behind-the-scenes thoughts regarding the disciples. Now, how do, how do we get this info? <coughs> you know, how do we find out? Here's what, here's what they were thinking. Well, many scholars believe that uh, the uh, Apostle Paul, before he came to faith in Christ, was a member of this group. He was there, or maybe he heard the stories of this. Perhaps he was uh, there uh, sitting on this council as Saul of Tarsus. And so this is perhaps how we could have come by uh, this information here, getting these backroom conversations. But here's what we find. Peter makes his declaration about the lordship of Christ. We find in verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they had recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the first thing I want you to see there is that they see the boldness of Peter and John. They see this courage that they have. Now, where did this courage come from? Well, it it didn't come from uh, Peter's own ability because Peter's like an emotional mess throughout the Gospels. And he's just like blowing it all the time. And it's, it's not his own work. And John overall kind of just appears to be like a little bit of a softy. He's like Jesus' BFF. He's always cozying up. And he's just kind of like rolling out, super easygoing. So it seems like maybe it wasn't the case that these two men were bold. But we find that this boldness is attributed to that which happened in Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the promise that Jesus said he would give them this helper, the spirit who would lead them into all truth, the helper who would come alongside them and give them what to say when they needed to say it and would give them words that could not be uh, countered. And, And this is the situation that they come into. And so the Holy Spirit gives boldness. And we need to understand this because there are moments where we're going to walk through life and we're not going to know what to do, but we need to understand that the Holy Spirit is there to equip his people, to empower his people to be bold. To be bold. It's precisely because they are weak that they are given this strength. Not because they are strong. It's like, oh, okay, well, you guys are pretty strong and pretty uh, well-equipped, so like, I'm just going to, you know, maybe top you off a little bit. No, these are clearly uneducated, common men. Weak people. And they come in, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to speak the word of God. Now, it's even more amazing because the religious leaders, they understand that these are uneducated common men, and they're just blown away. Peter and John were not these classically trained interpreters of the scripture. They didn't go through any of the rabbinical schools like this group of men that they were sitting before. They didn't have this 
intensive training from like their youth. These guys are blue-collar workers. These are people who are just rolling, rolling in trying to serve Jesus. Now, I want you to understand this concept because uh, this is a huge concept for your life, right? This is something that is so countercultural to our way of life in the U.S. It's counterculture to our way of life in the job market. How do you get a job? You're qualified. You, you put out your qualifications on your resume. You look at the qualifications for the job listing and you're like, okay, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. I can accomplish that. But in the economy of God, in his kingdom, uneducated does not mean unqualified. God, God's plan is full of using unqualified men to do his work. So if you're coming in feeling weak, if you're coming in feeling unqualified, you can know that you're in good company. Right? Moses, he came out. He was pretty good. He started out on top, and then the Lord had to, like, knock him down a few notches. He went out into the wilderness to be a shepherd for 40 years, and, like, he was just hanging out with, like, animals. And then the Lord was like, all right, like, Mo, let's, let's do this. We're going to go over here. And then even along the way, he was still kind of blowing it, and he kept making excuses, like, oh, I can't do this. I'm not, like, good at speaking. And he's like, okay, look, I'm going to hook you up with Aaron. He's going to, like, make it happen for you. He'll be, like, the one who can, like, handle this. And just Moses was full of excuses all the time. When the Lord called Gideon to work in the book of Judges, the Lord approaches Gideon to call him, and he calls him, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. Now, Gideon, at this time when the Lord is speaking to him, he's trying to, like, thresh his wheat, and he's like, normally you would do this on a hill, but he's afraid of, like, the surrounding nations and the armies, so he's, like, hiding, like, in, like, a little mill, trying to, like, do it in this little tiny room, and you need, like, wind to blow away the chaff. So he's, like, over here, like, this little chicken trying to, uh, trying to get, like, his food together. And the Lord comes up and he's like, hey, Gideon, you mighty man of valor, which Gideon clearly was not at that moment. But the Lord saw, 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 man, to call him out, to make him great in his obedience. It wasn't Gideon's strength. It wasn't anything that he had done, but it was the Lord coming alongside and doing that work through him. I mean, we could go on forever because there's, the scriptures are full of unqualified men. And I think it's so interesting that the majority of Jesus' disciples, minus uh, the Apostle Paul who comes a little bit later, all of them have no skills. It's like fishermen, uh, uh, Matthew, who was basically like the IRS, but like super sketchy, like major corrupt IRS, and everybody hated him. It's like, this is like the worst group of people that you would ever call to take the most important message. You're pretty much all like terrible at this and nobody trusts you. But here the Lord says, I'm going to make you strong. I'm going to call you. I'm going to qualify you. And so you need to understand that God has called all of us into his ministry, into his service. And so being uneducated, not feeling like you have what it takes feeling like you're just a regular, common person, doesn't mean that you're unqualified. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God calls people, and that's what qualifies them. 
The call of God upon your life to serve him is what qualifies you. None of the things that you've done before that, none of the things that you've prepared for qualify you. It's that he has called you into his ministry. It's that he has called you to serve him. He has called you to be a witness, to, to live out this life for his glory. That is what brings you the qualifications that you need. That is what brings you the qualifications that you need. Now, the Pharisees, or not not only the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they realize this, that it is Jesus who qualifies. Look at their response. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. They realized who their master was because Jesus, he, he didn't go through any of the rabbinic traditions. He didn't go through any of the, the schools. He wasn't taught by anyone. He wasn't professionally trained, but everyone recognized him as a rabbi. Everyone recognized him as a teacher. In, in, Jesus, or in John chapter 7, verse 14, there's a moment where Jesus goes up into the temple and he begins teaching. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Jesus didn't have teaching. And so they, the disciples now roll out. They're here. They're being put on trial. And the religious leaders, they can't wrap their mind around it. But then they're like, oh, these guys are disciples of Jesus. That's why they're not trained, but like they know what they're doing. That's what's happening. Now, when we look at this, we need to understand They didn't view this as a good thing. The religious leaders were like, oh, shoot, that's why they've been with Jesus. That's, that's, I'll make, it makes sense to them. But when we look at that, it's like, yeah, that's why. That's why they're like this. They've been with Jesus. We need to look at it in, in that perspective. The way that you're able to be faithful is you got to be with Jesus first. You got to know and enjoy Jesus. Knowing and enjoying Jesus then sends us out into mission to help people know about him. The disciples were with Jesus for three years. And after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, it was then that they were sent out. After they had spent time with him. After they had learned and and been coached by the Lord. (coughs) And so in our lives, when we go out, it should be evidence that we have been with Jesus. It should be evident that the way that we navigate our culture, the way that we navigate the corporate ladder that you have at your career, it should be evident that you've been with Jesus. Well, I worked, I worked in, a, in corporate for five years, and whenever I would have my... my um, my like yearly review, it was always like the most confusing thing ever and no one could ever like understand it because like they want you to like talk about like, oh, what, what are like your strengths and like what are your opportunities and like all this stuff. But they're used to like people coming in and being like super like cutthroat and like, oh, I'm amazing and like all this stuff. And like I have this like huge section on like humility and like how like I'm trying to like serve other people. And they're like, how are we supposed to, like, try, like, every single time when they got the review, they would be like, we need to have a conversation with you about it because we don't understand, like, what's happening here. 
But then it would lead to opportunities where they could be like, oh, you're actually doing like a lot more. And through my confusing reviews, I ended up getting like bigger like increases in pay than like everybody else. It was bizarre. But like learning to navigate these things, learning to navigate these structures that you and I are in, we have to do this with the mindset of how can we let people see, know, glean that we have been with Jesus. Every interaction, every opportunity that you have is there for you to build a relationship to make Jesus known. There's a, uh, a place that I work for and uh, everybody there has all a certain attitude towards this uh, woman who lives ac- across the street in this corner house and you know they think she's all super grumpy and angry and uh, they've told me about it a bunch of times and they don't like her she yells at them and comes up screams through the window and I've made it my mission to like know this lady I've made it my mission so the other day she was out I've never met her but she was out like raking her leaves across the street so I like wandered over there it's like oh just having a sweet conversation with her found out all this stuff about her and you know helping her put stuff in her wheelbarrow and like I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to win that lady I'm going to win her to Christ nobody likes her nobody wants to go to her but I'm going to do that and when it happens I'm waiting to see like all of these people just be like what just happened there how did this lady just get changed and transformed? And I'm just expecting that the gospel is just going to ripple through that community of people through this lady who everyone just really does not like. And, but it all just starts with like having a mindset of like, oh, everybody hates that lady? All right, well, that's my next thing that I'm working on. I'm going to make sure that she knows that she's loved. There are opportunities that are in front of us. Have eyes to see what Jesus is doing should be evident that you have been with Jesus. Verse 14, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So the Jewish leaders, they're, they're unable to come to this recognition uh, that we're stuck here. They're unable to come to a way that they are to bring judgment upon the disciples. They have, they have what they want to do, but they see this man here, and it's like, how are we going to refute this? He's like right here. Everybody knows him. The evidence for his healing, it's not something that we could just sweep under the rug. Everyone's watched it. The disciples have already proclaimed the gospel around it. They have no argument. And this is precisely what we want to look at. There is no argument against an unchanged life, or against a changed life. When Jesus comes in and transforms someone, there's no argument. You can't be like, well, here's how that's happened. There's no argument for that. You can't come up with like this logical way that someone went from death to life. Only Jesus does that. And so they have nothing to say. Now, this here, I want you to see that this is the response 
to Peter's spirit-led sermon that he gives just a few verses earlier. He lays out the case for Christ as the Messiah and as God. <coughs> so this is their response. They're like, great, like what are we going to do? This guy's here. And so they say, all right, apostles, you guys got to get out of here. We need to talk about this. Now, here's what happens. When they kick the disciples out and they have this conversation, they don't say, like, what do you think about like, what they were saying about Jesus? They say, what are we going to do about the disciples? Peter just laid out this whole case for here's what, we're, here's what you should do with Jesus. And they're like, okay, well, what are we going to do about these guys? They totally miss what is being presented to them. They just ignore it. They're not convinced that they even need to acknowledge Jesus as the one who brought healing to this man. And they are rejecting this call to put their trust in the name of Jesus for salvation. So although you may have spent time with Jesus, although it might be evident to other people that you have been with Jesus, even if all the circumstances are lining up correctly, you're filled with the Spirit, you're spending time with Jesus, you're stepping out in faith, in, whole, in, in boldness, sometimes you're just not going to reap there in that situation. And that's the case here. No logic, no specific spirit-filled, powerful word is going to come and bring like this result that you expect every time. Sometimes you're going to go out there and you're going to do that. And if Paul here was among this crowd, when Jesus shows up to Paul in Acts chapter 9, and kicks him off his horse and is like, hey, like, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I'm, I wonder if it's like one of those things where he flashed back to this moment where they were like, oh yeah, they were like talking about that. Should have listened back then. Just because they are faithful here and they don't get a result that is measurable doesn't mean that they failed. It doesn't mean that they blew it. They're uneducated, they're unqualified, they're filled with the Spirit, they obey God, they do what they're supposed to do. They don't reap in this moment. This entire religious leaders, they don't believe. They don't trust in Christ for salvation. And it's okay if we go out and we try to live boldly for the gospel so that people might know Jesus and there's not a harvest. It's not going to happen every time. That's okay. Don't be discouraged by that. Verse 15, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. They got together in private. They understood, hey, why do we have these guys here? Peter and John, they didn't break any laws. They didn't heal on the Sabbath. They brought healing to this crippled man. Um, it made the apostles, like, super popular. So, like, they realized we don't have any charges to bring against them. But at the same time, they were in a spot where it's like, well, we can't just penalize them for that. But on the other hand, we can't just let them go because they're going to keep doing what they're doing. They're going to keep teaching and healing in the name of Jesus. So they're kind of stuck. And in fact, they, made, they play a role in making Jesus more popular by like highlighting this. They probably would have let them go and just been like, oh, not really bothered with it. 
They, they wouldn't have gotten so, like, Jesus wouldn't have gotten so uh, popular so quickly. But through the Lord's sovereignty, he sees this happen. Verse 16, <coughs> here's what they say. What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So first thing that they note is like, we don't know what to do. They definitely recognize that a notable sign has happened. Something important has happened. It's evident not only to them, but to the entire entirety of Jerusalem, and there's no denying it. So they basically just said, like, we have hard evidence. We saw it. Everybody in the city saw it. So, like, we can't deny it. Now, how are we going to stop it? This is not the proper response. If you see something and you see hard evidence, you make the confession. Everybody else gets it. We all get it. The response would be like, maybe we should consider Jesus. But they reject this sign because of the status that it gives to Jesus as the risen Christ. And oftentimes, this is, this is the way that we live. We often seek to deny the signs of the risen Christ in our lives. Because like the religious leaders, if Jesus really is Lord, then it means that we must live as his servants. We must live our life according to his rules, his law, under his submission. But if all that he said is true, we must obey it. If Jesus Christ is Lord, if he is God, then we ought to obey him. And so they rejected it because it gave Jesus status as Lord, but also because it challenged their teaching, particularly on the resurrection, and it threatened their, their power, their authority, their leadership. <coughs> their main concern is that this doesn't spread any further. It's like, how are we going to stop this? We, we just don't want it to spread any further. But they are starting to understand that people are trusting in Jesus, and so this is their other concern. It's, it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, I want you to see one thing here before we move on to the verse 18. If they had the ability to produce a response to the resurrection of Christ, this would have been a good time to do it. But I want you to see that the religious leaders, they never take any action to disprove uh, the main point of the apostles. They don't ever say, oh, no, Jesus isn't alive. They don't ever say, Jesus isn't risen. They don't ever make any claim that it didn't happen. They simply say, you can't say that. We don't want you to say that. They don't even ever come against it because they know that in the healing, the recreation of this man, it, it, it is empowered through the resurrection. They never deny the resurrection of Jesus in there. They never come against it. They never speak against it. They simply just want them to shut up. Just don't talk about that anymore. 
And so, in verse 18, it's what they do once more. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You know that's not going to happen. So Peter, he says, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John understand that the truth of the gospel must be proclaimed. The truth of the gospel must be proclaimed. Their charge from Jesus was that they were to be witnesses of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. They were to go and take that message from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the outermost parts of the earth. They were to take this message as his witnesses. And they received the ability to do this through the Holy Spirit. And so for them to be silent, to obey the religious leaders here, would be to deny his life, death, resurrection, ascension. It would mean that they were telling Jesus, we're not going to obey you. We are not going to take part in the command to be witnesses to your life. And so they clearly can't take part in this. And throughout history, we see that they are obedient to the Lord. They know that they ought to obey God rather than man. So much so that all of the disciples, minus John, end up being uh, martyred for their faith. They end up being killed for the name of Christ. If there was any time to say, oh, that didn't happen, I don't believe in that, it would be like, right before you're going to be killed, and you're like, oh, just pause, maybe like not, I'm, I'm cool with that. But they say, we can't even deny it, and we're willing to take it to our grave. It's so true, it's so life-changing, it's so transformative that we are willing to put all our trust in it and say, our life here means so little to us because we will soon be united with our Savior, with the one whom we proclaim. They are focused on obeying God rather than man. And this is what you and I must understand. As God's people living in a modern age, living in our culture, in our society, for us to be faithful to the gospel, it requires that we have this boldness, that we have this courage, that we have this same willingness in those moments where we're being told to obey man rather than God. When we're being told that we have to submit to the laws of man. If the laws of God are greater than the laws of man, we need to obey those. Every single time. Verse 21, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. So they threatened them again. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. 
for the man whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So the members of the Sanhedrin, this religious council, they hear the testimony. They see the changed life, but they decide that they don't want to accept that their view, their perspective, was out of line with God's plan, God's will. And so they threaten the disciples again. They got, they've got nothing that they can do to them. It says, in fact, that they found no way to punish them because of the people. One, they were afraid of the people. But two, they saw that the people were giving credit to God. They were praising God for what had happened. They were saying, look at what God has done in the life of this man who was once broken but has now been made whole. Are they going to come in and be like, well, actually, like, don't listen to them. Like, we're really actually not really happy about what happened with this guy. They're supposed to be for God. So they're kind of put in this position where like, oh, we don't really want to like acknowledge that this has happened, but we're just going to let it go. But we really hate it. The result of Jesus changing lives, transforming ends in worship. The whole point of knowing Jesus, of coming to faith in Jesus, is not just so that you can be made whole, not so that your brokenness can be made whole, but so that you might worship him, that you might come into a relationship with him and know him and enjoy him. When we talk about worshiping, we're not just talking about singing songs. We're not just talking about that moment on Sunday morning in like the 1% of your week or like half a percent of your week. We're talking about that consistent life choices of living in accordance with his character in concert with his spirit, with his nature. So that others might see our lives, our good works, and glorify God. The crowd gets it. They hear the gospel, they believe on Christ for salvation, and then they respond in worship. This is the end goal. Worship. God uses a broken man and makes him whole. God takes unqualified common men and uses them for his glory, so that people will meet Jesus and come into a relationship with him. And he uses uncommon men, or he uses, un, he uses common men, uneducated men, in such an ironic way here. It's the authorities in this moment who are calling this trial, but the Lord uses these uneducated men to put the religious leaders on trial. It's the authorities who have the power. But it's the apostles who end up being empowered with the Holy Spirit and subvert that power that the authorities have. And it's through this miraculous work, this act, that they demonstrate the boldness given to them by the Holy Spirit, the words given to them by the Holy Spirit to produce faith in this broken man and in the lives of many. 
The apostles' main phrase that they say to the religious leaders is, we cannot help, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. They believe the gospel. They understand it in their hearts. And they say, I'm so filled, I'm so blown away, I'm so changed and transformed that I have to communicate this to people. Now, why often do we not speak of the things that we have seen and heard? You and I are members of the household of faith. We believe the gospel. We believe it with our ears. We believe it with our hearts. But oftentimes, we, we don't follow through. <coughs> Sometimes it's the fear of man. why we don't want to speak it out in the area of sharing the gospel. And even in those moments, we can be comforted that it was Jesus who lived a perfect life for our sin and for our failures, even when we're, we're afraid to speak forth what we have seen and heard. Even in those moments where we don't do what we ought to do, Jesus paid the price for those very specific moments. In our lack, he made provision for it. But I think one of the other ways, and one of the main ways that we, live, that we fail to live in a way that recognizes what we have seen or heard. One of the other ways that we fail to live godly lives on a daily basis where we're looking about, when we're making choices based upon our own desires, our own nature, our own abilities, is because we begin to believe the lie. And I think we're all subject to slip into this again and again. We begin to believe the lie that was whispered in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, at the fall, where Satan just spoke this little lie to Adam and Eve, saying, how do, how do you really know that God is good? You can't really believe that he has your best interest in heart. You, you can't really trust that he's good. When we believe that lie, when we believe that lie, it's hard for us to go out and live these lives for God's glory because we're going about thinking like, well, if I do that, like, that's not going to be in my best interest. I'm, oh, God's not really going to provide for me what I want, what I need. In my heart of hearts, these are the things that I really want, and I know that God doesn't really care about those things, and so I've got to get them for myself. I've got to go out of my way to make the things that I want a priority. Oftentimes, the things that keep us from living out the gospel from living sanctified lives is our tendency to believe that lie of the enemy, that God is not good. But God is good. And He has demonstrated it. He has proved His goodness to us through His grace in the giving of His Son. When we were His enemies, Christ died for us. When we hated him, when we didn't like him at all, 
when we did things, sins of omission and sins of commission, things that we didn't do that we were supposed to do and things that we did do that we were not supposed to do, when we did them knowingly or unknowingly, He loved us then. When we were angry with Him and we were shaking our fist at God, in moments where He said, ah, you don't love me. We've told God, like, I hate you. In those moments when we were His enemies, when we were at our absolute worst, when we were completely unlovable, He said, I love you and I'm going to come get you. In those specific moments, we can have the, the anchor knowing that God has our best interest in mind. Because even when we didn't want Him, even when we hated Him, He still was taking care of us. How much more so is He going to continue to take care of us now that we are trusting in Him for salvation? When we have these hidden wants and desires, the things that we want and need, the things that we would like to see accomplished in our lives, God knows that we have those things. And He cares about us much more deeply than we could ever care about ourselves. And some things he withholds for our own good, but some things he wants to deliver on a bigger scale than we're asking for. We cannot believe the lie of the enemy that God is not good. He has demonstrated his goodness through his Son. <clears throat> and it's only through his name that we can be saved. And so now we want to come to that same spot that Peter ended with, letting that hang in the air. And now a time for our response to make your decision about what you're going to believe, what you're going to do, how you're going to leave your life. Do we agree wholeheartedly in mind, body, spirit, soul that there is salvation in no one else? And for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the question we consider this morning and we want to respond now. The question for you is, what is your response going to be? What do you need to pray in? What is the Lord bringing you conviction over? What do you need to change in your life in order to obey Him, to know Him more, to put Christ on display? What is it that you need to do so that people might see that you have been with Jesus? We'll pray that the Holy Spirit speaks those things into your life. But we're going to respond in worship together now. Let's pray. We'll get to it. <coughs> Lord, we're thankful for your kindness to us. We're thankful for the generosity of your Son. We're thankful that you have given us new life. We want to respond, Lord, in worship and thanksgiving now. Pray that you would give us 
a soft heart to receive what you would speak to us. We don't want to reject um, the clarity of what you have brought before us this morning. We don't want to come and say, we, we see what has been done and there's, there's nothing that we can do about it. There's no denying it. The, everyone else has seen it, but how do we get around it? We want to come and say, Lord, how do we obey you? How do we uh, come into submission of what you're doing? How, do, how can we be changed and transformed? Open our eyes, Lord. Work in our hearts, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. And call us to worship now. We lift our voices and our hands to you as we receive the bread and the cup, as we respond in giving. We want you to be glorified. We love you, Jesus. Amen.